Um, I'm reading from Romans chapter 16 because I don't know what else to do. Uh, and and um, I say that facetiously and I mean it with all my heart. Uh, there are two series of sermons that I want to walk you through. And as I started preparing, I realized I have so much more studying to do before I can get to them. Um, so I'm just filling time in the meantime. Uh, next week, John Fisher is going to be with us. He and I were uh, having a conversation this last week. And I said, well, what have you been thinking about? What, what's God put on your heart lately? And he started to tell me. And I, and I thought, well, that's really good. Um, and I asked him if he'd share here next Sunday, and he will. So looking forward to that. Okay, Romans 16, and bear with me as I read through this. I might mess up on a couple of names, so just forgive me. Uh, but if you don't know any better, then I didn't really mess up. Um, and notice what Paul says about the people that he mentions. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca, or that is Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house, Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Sacchus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus and give them my condolences. I threw in that last part. I figured if you, you got a Narcissus in your family, you need condolences. <laughs> Greet those workers in the Lord, Trephina and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, were Tryphina and Tryphosa twins, do you think? Um, anyway, greet the beloved Persis who worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncratus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. 13 years ago, I stopped going to church. Um, that summer, a national survey of pastors from around the United States raided my church among the 40 churches in America that were the most creative 
and most influential. But personally, I was broken, I was burned out, I felt alone, and I felt like a failure. With Barbara's help and uh, conversations with Romuald, I began a slow healing process. But um, Sunday mornings for Barbara and I were a time to refresh our souls. And what we would do is we'd start at North Beach in San Clemente and take that trail by the train tracks all the way down to the pier and uh, turn around and come back. Sometimes, well, usually we'd take the dog for a walk and sometimes we'd uh, sit at one of those patios uh, connected to a restaurant and just have breakfast together. Uh, of course, that wasn't Kona. That was Ginger, our other lab. Uh, Kona, we couldn't do that with. Kona would be going from table to table saying, do you see those two people over there? I mean, they look nice, but they don't care, take care of me. Look how selfish they are. They're eating all that food and not sharing with me. <laughs> now, she'd say all of that with just a look. And she'd look over at us and then roll her eyes. You know, she'd put her head down so that when she looked up, they looked really, really sad eyes. Um, so anyway, um, that was our Sunday mornings. And we'd greet people, and people would want to pet our dog, and we'd talk, and we'd sometimes see dolphins. But we'd always see the ocean, and it was always wonderful. We were always refreshed. Best Sundays ever. Um, towards the end of 2006, I found myself missing some of my closest friends from church. People who I had walked with, uh, some of them for 30 years. I had performed their weddings, I had dedicated their children, uh, I had baptized them or baptized their children, uh, I had performed memorial services for them, for parents and other relatives, and, uh, and been in many different situations and environments with them, walked with them through hard stuff and through wonderful stuff. Um, a few of them had contacted me, had uh, written or called to tell me that they really missed my teaching. And that, that hurt. Um, a year later, I, I thought it was safe. Um, okay, here's the thing. All across the United States, there have been pastors who have stepped down from their pastorate and still attended the same church. And it's like the halls are haunted by their ghost. It's the worst thing a pastor could do because there are people still with loyalties to this person and they'll, they'll go to, to him or her and say, what did you think about what the pastor said today? Well, you know, he was almost right. <laughs> And that's enough to undercut what's there. That's enough to, to undermine. Well, I thought so, Pastor. I sure you know, wish you were back there. Well, yeah, thanks. Um, anyway, I, I waited a year. And then maybe, I don't know, 12 or 15 people, I started to send them weekly reflections. And that's what I called it, reflections with a C-T. Uh, in, in other words, spelled correctly. And... Um, they were just meditations of mine during that week, amplified a little bit. And I, I, I sent them on condition that they could share them if they wanted to, but not tell anyone who wrote them. 
because I did not in any way want to interfere with what was developing after me. I just wasn't there, and I wasn't going to you know, mess with that. Uh, it was too important. It was too important to give Peter John you know, his full room to uh, develop his own style, his own ministry, you know, not have to worry about me. So um, two years after that, reflection with an X, uh, spelled the British way, began to meet on Sunday mornings in our home. Okay, so that's our history. Um, and the reason I bring this up is Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, and he never lost sight of the people that he loved. He, he carried them always in his heart and, and on his mind. Uh, he's signing off with this last chapter of Romans, but he affirms his connection with them. It, it's there and it's strong. He may be many miles away, writing to a church he's never seen, but he knows people who are in it, and, and he's telling the others, accept these people, they're good people, and this is, is how they're good. Um, he mentions Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila and, and the others, and he adds personal comments. Um, a servant of the church, my fellow workers, my fellow prisoner, my beloved. And, and all of these things uh, give character to the names, just enough so that we can appreciate his affection for them and also his commendation of them. Uh, he also makes reference to other churches several times. All the churches of the Gentiles greet you. Um, all the churches of Christ greet you. Talks about Priscilla and Aquila having a church in their home. Make sure you say hi to them. Uh, he also talks about Gaius and his whole church later on. And um, he also sends, uh, sends his own prayers and affection for them. It's obvious that for Paul, a church was not a building. When we say, we're going to go to church, I think the, you know, the concrete expression, we see ourselves getting in the, the car, telling the church, uh, uh, pardon me, the kids to stop fighting, um, <clears throat> being frustrated because once again our spouse is late and we're going to be late and it's always so embarrassing, and driving to a building. We're going to church. Right? That's not in Paul's mind at all. There weren't many buildings that were explicitly for churches. They mostly met in homes at this time. Um, so when he talks about church, he's not talking about brick and mortar. Now, I, I know you, you've, you've heard this before. The church is not an organization. It is an organism. Francis Schaeffer uh, in Labrie, which is a small commune that he and his wife, Edith, uh, uh, ran in Labrie, Switzerland, a very philosophically, theologically minded uh, man who I think revived fundamentalism uh, halfway through the 20th century, which is too bad. But he was a good man otherwise. Um, uh, Francis Schaeffer, one time preaching at Labrie, uh, very strongly made the statement, the church is not an organization, it's an orgasm. And everyone tensed up, and his wife Edith is like shaking her head no, but, 
that he could see that he got a very good response. So he said it again, no, the church is not an organization, it's an orgasm. And then when they all started laughing, he realized his mistake. Turned red and said, uh, I mean, organism. Anyway, uh, Paul's favorite metaphor for the church is the body of Christ. That's an or, a living organism. And that's how he sees church. It's all these people. He would say, you are the church. And you are. When I woke up that morning realizing that I missed my friends, there was a very clear distinction in my mind. It was so clear to me, and I think for the first time ever. I missed the community of people. I did not miss the institution. I <laughs> in fact, when I thought of the institution, I felt oppression. Now, now, I'm not saying all institutions are bad. We'll talk about that a little bit. But I'm just saying it was so clear to me. Last year, I met up with a close friend. He's lived in Oregon for many years now. He's also in the ministry. Uh, and when he and I were in our early 20s, we were, we were pretty tight. We did a lot of ministering together. Uh, he's brilliant, and that's why I glommed on to him, I think. Uh, he was in Bible college uh, his senior year, um, third year Greek, um, et cetera, et cetera, getting straight A's. And he was always um, enlightening, enlightening me to really gifted theologians. Uh, this last week I was with my little sister and she said, oh, I'm, I'm taking this course, I'm going for a degree. She said, by the way, um, your friend Guy Gray is teaching one of the classes. So he just, uh, you know, he's just this wonderful person. But we met, we met up last year, he has a son who lives in this area now. And uh, he wanted to know all about uh, how I'm doing today. And I told him about my, you know, my thoughts about the church's institution. And um, he, he said to me, I wondered how you lasted so long. You were never cut out for that. And I thought, well, he knows me better than I know myself. Uh, you know, I thought I could handle it. I thought that, you know, I did an okay job of it. Um, but he was so right. I was never cut out for it. Institutions form naturally within large groups or growing groups of people. It can be a, a team, uh, a club, uh, uh, a corporation. Uh, and because there's a multiplicity of people, there has to be some kind of organization. You know, we need to organize this thing. And so um, systems are needed. Well, if we begin organizing, and pretty soon we have a structure, perhaps a hierarchy, a chain of command, and, and now we have to br uh, bring systems into the structure, and we need an infrastructure, because the infrastructure holds up the structure, you know, all, you maintain everything. So we need systems like, uh, you know, a formal line of communication. How does a message 
get communicated to all these people. It has to go through this person, through this person, through this person. And then you get all those frustrations of calling and being put on hold for a long time uh, and then routed to the wrong person who says, oh, I'm not the right person, and getting rerouted. That's the life of an institution. Um, and then the organization has to be staffed and capitalized. You know, uh, now we have to hire people. Uh, and in, in really large churches, uh, the pastor has a staff that he's responsible to. And in some churches, the staff is the size of a small church. So um, people have less and less direct access to the person they call my pastor. And um, you know that's an issue. Um, but institutions uh, take on a life of their own. Church institutions rise initially to support the life of the community, right? To serve, the, the institution is to serve the community, to help everything go smoothly, to make sure everyone is cared for. Um, we see examples of this, I mean, let's say the roots of institutionalization, uh, both in Israel and in the early church. Uh, early on in Israel with Moses, uh, he spends an entire day with a long line of people waiting to talk to him so he can resolve disputes. And his father-in-law comes and, he, and he, he's watching this. His father-in-law is a priest of Midian. Midian had their own gods, but this guy can see that Yahweh, who's, who's with Moses and the people, he, he's above all the Egyptian gods. So he, he has due respect, but he, he watches Moses and he tells him at the end of the day, you know, if you keep doing this, you're going to burn out and all these people are going to burn out. So here's what I recommend. Organize the people into groups, get leaders for all the groups, and delegate to them. And then the really tough cases, they can bring to you. Right. And, um, the, the apostles find out that there's uh, a lot of friction going on at the, the food table where bread is given away every day. And the Hellenists, that is the, the, the Greek Jewish women, are not getting as much attention as the local Jewish women. They're being given preferential treatment. So this isn't good. We're the, we're the church. Everyone shares equally. It doesn't matter if you've lived in a foreign land for a long time. You're here now. You're part of the church. So the apostles said, look, um, we can't leave ministering the word to go wait on tables. We're not going to get personally involved in this. So um, what we're going to do is just continue in the ministry of the word and prayer and delegate this to someone else. And they chose seven guys to uh, take responsibility for that. All right, so th the beginning of institutionalization, structure is formed, organization occurs, systems are put in place so that people's needs are met. Right? In a sense, the apostles are still responsible for the care of the people. They're just not handling it themselves. All right, this is all nice. Um, so why is that a problem? Well, um, though the structure is there to serve the community, that can easily turn around to where the community is serving the structure. That people are coming and they're needed to support this great institution. 
that's doing this and it's doing that. The community is what defines the church, not its business. So if the institution is pushing its way forward, there's going to be a whole lot more business discussion. There's going to be um, you know, more issues that we have to bring to the congregation. Uh, secondly, institutions require management, but people need to be led. And there's a big difference because the people have to consent to be led, to being led. You see what I'm saying? It's like in, when you are under management and you have a job to do, you may not have a lot of say. You may not have any say in what you're doing. You may have requirements you have to abide by or look for another job, which my wife did this last year. Um, so if you're being led, um, you can say, I don't think I want to do that or I don't think I agree with that. And that's okay. And there's always that freedom within the community of Christ for differences. In fact, Paul celebrates the differences by using the metaphor of body. We're not all a hand. We're not all a foot. We're not all an eye. We're not all an ear. We all have our different places in the community and our different perspectives and our different, our, our different roles that we play. Not only that, institutions have goals that are not strictly spiritual. Now you can say, well, the goal is there to serve the spiritual goals of the church. But if the institution takes over, it's there to serve its own goals. And I think the number one goal typically in our culture is finances. We've got to have the money to pull this off. Um, we've got to have the money for a bigger parking lot, a bigger building, uh, you know, to to whatever we do, you know, turn it into the Taj Mahal. Um, and uh, it, it's a tragic day when that gets confused. Why? Okay. Um, we have this event coming up. And we don't have room here in our church building. So we rented this other space to have this event. Well, um, this other space is quite pricey. And they said, you're going to have to have at least 500 people involved or um, you're going to have to pay the full price anyway. You know, if you have 500 people, you know, so much money ahead, no problem. You've got rent. But if you only have 200 people, you still have to pay for the whole thing. So before the event is even fully planned, it has to be sold to get the 500 people there. So you make a promise. This event is going to transform your Christian life. This event is going to be the biggest thing our church has done in 10 years. This event, we're going to reach the kingdom of heaven. You're making all these promises, though you haven't even planned what's, you maybe you have a name for the event, but you haven't even planned it. You're making all these promises. You're selling it because you have to make budget. The institution says, you have to make budget. Even though you're a nonprofit, even though it's not about profit and loss, somebody in, in the institution is pinching pennies. 
which isn't a bad thing. I mean, to, you know, to be thrifty about things. Steve Mays one time said, Chuck, your dad pinches pennies so tight, Lincoln's eyes bulge out. Um, now that they're both in heaven, they can work that out. But uh, <laughs> okay, so Helmut Thielke—he's a—he he was a German pastor and theologian, and one of my favorites. He said there is not an institutional structure which is in complete accord with the nature of the church. Just as we cannot be justified through works so the church cannot become pleasing to God through institutional perfection. Uh, we have this thing running so well that you know, we are just getting closer and closer to God every day. And, and Benjamin Franklin would agree, but I don't think Paul would. Church management became a really big deal from the 70s through the 90s. And um, there were articles about the senior pastor as CEO. And uh, Peter Drucker was an important speaker at um, pastors' conferences or forums. Uh, another important speaker was Lyle Schaller, who was specifically all about church administration or church management. Uh, and some people assume you can manage your way to any goal. Look, the church will never reach its goals except by grace and faith and an act of God. We never manage our way to salvation. We never manage our way to evangelism. I mean, you can have programs you know, for evangelizing people and it can be scripted really well and, and thought out really well and still not work. Okay, so... Theoliki also says the kingdom of God can use any form of institution as its opportunity if its people are sufficiently quick to hear. The devil, too, can use any institution as his chance if its members are deaf, indifferent, or too blindly and trustingly content with its well-oiled machinery. I used to envy those well-oiled church machines when I'd visit them and think, man, they have it all together. Um, look at they, these greeters. They all have smiles on their faces. And look at these great you know, programs. Uh, they, they show everything, you know, uh, th these menus of church activities. Um, he says that the, the way devil, the devil can use institutions became clear to him when he was visiting churches in America. I, thought, I found that interesting. Um, at first, he envied them. He, he thought, this is the solution for church because he says the attendance of the, of the churches he visited, there's not a church in Germany as large as the churches he saw in America. Um, but then he began to see the soft underbelly of the beast. And, and I won't go into that. I'll just quote this. This too, of course, is an opportunity for God. For here he can test the faithfulness and steadfastness of his servants. But as we said, it is also a chance for the devil, the temptation to be opportunistic, to compromise, and to cover up is always near. The temptation is always near. And his conclusion, 
So we should do some thinking about the institutional structure of the church. Their importance, however, should also not be overestimated, for we must remember that they are human works on which our salvation does not depend. If the institution goes away, our salvation is still solid. And so we can't depend on the institution or what it does for us. We depend on God and on his grace. Okay, this is, this is why I've wanted to avoid using the church to describe reflection and why I've put you in such an awkward position when someone asks you, are you going to church on Sunday? And you go, well, no, not exactly. <laughs> Chuck doesn't allow us to call it church. Oh. <laughs> and he doesn't, he doesn't allow us to call him a pastor. But if we call a spade a spade, it's a church and he's a pastor. However, um, um, the way I see it, what the church is and how it functions in the New Testament, it is a spiritual community. It's not a spiritual institution because there's no such thing. It's a spiritual community backed by an institution that runs on secular principles. In our culture, church is inevitably linked to institutions. And sometimes people don't even bother to say church, they say organized religion. Institutions are all about the three M's, management, marketing, and yes. Um, the New Testament church existed in its relationships and its interactions of people with people. Not interacting with an institution, interacting with each other. And a lot of the heavy institutionalization of uh, the temple and its worship, well, when the temple went away, so did that. And the church then was left with each other, the scripture, the Holy Spirit, and God. There are two Greek words that may help us to, to get a handle on this. The first is ekklesia, usually translated church. But it did not mean church. It did not mean a sacred space or, or sacred people. Ecclesia is made of two words, which means to call and uh, to call together. And ecclesia was a group of citizens called to a public assembly. If there was a big announcement to be made on behalf of the Roman Empire, they'd be called into the agora, into the, the marketplace, and they were an assembly. They were an ecclesia. They were a church, right? but not a church. They were just an, a, an assembly, a public assembly. Um, the other Greek word is koinonia, and that might sound, sound familiar to you. Um, there are different periods of the Greek language. There's the classical period, and then there was the common period called the Koine uh, Greek of that time. There's the Ionic, and there's a, the Koine. The Koine means common. Koinonia is to share in common. And in the New Testament, it's translated fellowship, partners or partnership, communion. Koinonia speaks of a community. It even has that translation. People who share a life together and specifically a life in Christ. So 
koinonia defines the ecclesia. Fellowship, sharing in common, communion, defines church. So we always have to look at the koinonia, the sharing uh, of our lives to see if we are the ecclesia of the New Testament. And that's why I want to always be reminded that we're a spiritual community, that we are a community of people um, who love each other and care for each other and work with each other, but we're a spiritual community. But that, that is very important to remember. We don't get together for political rallies. Uh, we you know, don't get together. I mean, we get together for projects, but projects that are driven, even humane concerns, by our basic commitment to God and to each other and to the world around us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship, koinonia, with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 1.3. Paul here is loving people. He's, he's serving people. But he's also working to protect them. In verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Those last two remarks are really important. Um, Especially if I'm worried about this, he says, well, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. The danger comes from, from people, um, from what they cause and what they create. They cause divisions and they create obstacles. Regarding causing divisions, there's a proverb that says, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. They create divisions. They sow discord among brothers. Um, few weeks ago, Esther mentioned high conflict people. She used that term. Uh, I first heard uh, that term when Jim uh, used it when I was first getting to know him. High conflict people will exploit disagreements that people have with each other or will invent disagreements if they can't find any to exploit. And Believe it or not, there are people who are high conflict. They have lots of tension, lots of distress inside of them. And a way that they get rid of it is by pushing it onto other people. 
right? Creating chaos for other people, creating confusion. You talk to them, they just get more and more confused or more and more upset. And they go around irritating, you know, like, like creating irritations. And they, they plant seeds. Well, what do you think about so-and-so? Um, do you think that they're just a little bit too holy for the rest of us, a little bit legalistic? And you start thinking about it. Well, I never thought of him that way. You know, um, wow, now that you mention it, I, I have noticed that he washes his car twice a week. <laughs> you know, maybe he is better than the rest of us. Um, uh, and they, and if, if you try to nail them down and say, you are causing divisions, no, no. I'm just asking sincere questions. You're asking leading questions. You're, and, you're, and your questions aren't really questions. You're sowing seeds. You're sowing discord among brothers. They, they um, create obstacles. Uh, sometimes that, the word, the Greek word is scandalon. They, they create scandals, they do. They, the, the, the scandal's not there until they create it. But sometimes that's translated stumbling blocks. And the point is, they make it difficult for others to live a simple life of faith by creating this confusion, this chaos, this division. The best way to deal with these people, Paul says, is to avoid them. If you can discern that this is what they are, the safest thing for you is to avoid them. Uh, Martha Stout wrote a book several years ago entitled The, the Sociopath Next Door. <laughs> you didn't know that he lived next door, did you? Um, and it's, it's very enlightening. She says uh, one in four, I mean, <laughs> not here, but um, one in four of your friends, your neighbors, is a sociopath, has sociopathic tendencies of some kind. And uh, they're heartless. They have no empathy. They have no conscience. And, and they live to degrade others. These are people with this distress inside that's never been resolved. And so they emit it into others to create confusion and chaos. Anyway, um, she says, uh, how do we deal with them? She said, the best way to protect yourself from a sociopath is to avoid him, to refuse any kind of contact or communication. If you get, get sucked into some kind of dealing with a sociopath and you think, oh man, he's already got $5,000 of mine. I'm going to get that money back. He, he plays this game. He thinks about this day and night. He never thinks about anything else. And he plays this game better than you'll ever play it. And he'll play a game you won't ever play because he has no conscience. He will play dirty. And, and the thing that they're capable of doing to others are unimaginable to an innocent mind. Um, now, this isn't so easy to avoid them because in the first place, it's difficult to detect. And also, as, as Paul indicates, they're charismatic with their smooth words and their flattering speech. They deceive the naive. Now, the, the, who's a smooth talker? It's often a very charismatic person. It's charming when you meet them. They deceive the naive. And I think that we make ourselves naive. I think that we do this 
uh, consciously in that we want to believe that everyone in our spiritual community is a good person looking out for everyone else. We want to believe that, that as Christians we can just embrace anyone or if someone advertises that they're a Christian plumber, you know, that we can just believe that they're going to be honest and fair with us. <laughs> hey, look, he may be a Christian, he's still a plumber. So, um, <laughs> so um, they still create, create chaos, they stir up suspicion, they ruin relationships. Should we love everyone? Yes, but love has a big toolbox with lots of different tools in it. Right, so um, someone said, if, if a hammer is your only tool, everything starts to look like a nail. Uh, though hammers can be used creatively. I mentioned that in my first conversation with Jim, he, he used the term high conflict people. And it was funny because, not funny, interesting, intriguing, amazing, that because as he talked about high conflict people, I began to see how I had had no boundaries in my life, that you know, my sense of what it meant to love all people was to let anyone get close to me, even predators, even, um, even high conflict people. And so um, Barbara and I consulted with Jim for about nine months, and the first seven months was all about high conflict people. We learned about personality disorders. We, we, learned, all, we learned about the four horsemen of, uh, of uh, nightmarish relationships. Uh, uh, and then after about seven months, Jim kind of did a big breath and he said, okay, we've you know, gone over all this information about high conflict people and next week, we're going to start talking about how to love them. And I said, what? <laughs> you just told us to have you know, good boundaries and, and to you know, be careful and not let these people in close. And he said, well, we have to love them. I mean, this is who we are. This is what we do. He says, but what do you think that means? doesn't mean you have to be best friends with them. doesn't mean you have to pull out your wallet every time they come around. doesn't mean you, know, you have to believe them, trust them. Um, Right? or go to the movies with them. It's just, there are different ways to love them. He said, sometimes the best way to love someone who has no boundaries is to provide them boundaries. You're not going to call me after 9 o'clock. Call me after 9 o'clock, and you will never call me again. You'll never get to me again. That's the rule. That's the boundary. If you don't respect this, I'm serious. So now they have something they're not used to, but it's going to help them. It's going to help them. And if not, it's going to help you because it will offer you protection from in, uh, unnecessary intrusion. So um, I have met Christians who have been devastated by a church split. They were in a church. It was family. They, they saw it as, as the first place where they were really loved, really embraced and accepted. And then the church split over nonsense. And for them, it was traumatic, like a divorce. And they had, when I met them, they had not been able to return to church at all. 
and assume that they never would because it was just too painful. I can't get that close again to a community and allow it to hurt me like this. I can't do this twice. And they're disillusioned. They're, they were a part of a church, but the spiritual community got torn apart. And in verse 20, Paul says, eventually God is going to address this. He's going to put an end to the source of all of this. He's going to crush Satan underneath your feet. You can believe that Satan wants to destroy churches, ruin Christian relationships, ruin Christians, make us sour, bitter, you know, uh, uh, pull us away from the other embers that keep us warm, keep our flame going. So, and then he says, so um, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is what carries us along. Okay, we're going to leave that unpleasantness and jump right to the end. Verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. This is a doxology, and a doxology has the word doxa in it, usually. Doxa translates glory, and so he's giving glory, glory to God. Um, this is what worship does, it glorifies God. Paul loads this worship up with theology, which is perhaps the best thing that we can do with theology is we can turn it into to praise of God. There's, there's, some theo theology, well, there's some theology that just spins your head around. It's like, whoever came up with theopoetics um, uh, and who can comprehend it when they start studying it. I think people fake that they comprehend it. That's my take on it because I have to fake it. But um, to take theology and turn it into worship, like, you know, I don't know what to do with this except to praise a God who's so magnificent, so majestic, so full of glory and splendor. Theology without worship is like a lab uh, strewn with research papers and dead specimens. It, it needs a life. Theology does not have a life of its own. It has truth, but it needs expression. That truth has to go somewhere. It has to do something. And uh, so Paul praises God, and he, he brings us at the end of Romans to where he began with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, by the way, worship without theology also has its weaknesses, like the Samaritan woman, and Jesus told her, you Samaritans worship, uh, do not know what you worship. You worship, you know not what. Uh, or the Athenians who had an altar to the unknown God. We really don't know. And they're lacking the truth, the theology about God. So um, we need theology, but we also need worship. We need worship, we also need theology. And what Paul does in this, in this doxology is he, he tracks this message back to God. And he does it with the Greek word kata. It's translated according to. To him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to, okay, where'd you get the gospel, Paul? 
Well, according to the revelation of the mysteries kept secret for a long time, according to the command of the eternal God. So this didn't just, you know, uh, spring up of itself overnight. This has been worked out through the ages. A lot of it, a big piece of it was missing for a long time, that mystery. But now it's been revealed in Jesus Christ, so, so we have it. If, if you've ever had your picture taken with a group, it could be a, a team that you're on, uh, coworkers, a big family uh, reunion, uh, whatever, and, and you get that picture, do you look for yourself? First thing, okay, am I there? And I'm wondering if there are people in Rome, when they hear this letter being read, and they're with the spiritual community as it's read, if they're listening for their name. Your name is, is spoken. You're there. You're in this, this picture. Um, and each one of you is mentioned by name. I am enjoying ministry now more than I ever have before. Um, I started a church when I was too young and stupid to start one. It was awesome. Those people are still awesome to this day. Um, Dana Point started as a home Bible study. I don't think, I mean, even though, you know, God called me to it and he used me, I don't think I was ready for it until now. I feel like he's been preparing me for this. This is the most fulfilling experience of ministry I've ever had. It's the most joy-filled, to be sure. You are wonderful people. You love and you demonstrate that love. God wants three things from his spiritual community. He wants that love of ours to know him and to glorify him. He wants that love of ours to know each other and to care for each other and serve each other. And he wants that love of ours to extend into the world, where we go into it as witnesses of God's love. And Jesus said, they'll know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for each other. And this is what he wants. He wants our, our witness. So spiritual community, um, friends, family, uh, really, if I tell you you're closer to me than my own family, my DNA family, you are. And the DNA that we have together is, is a tighter bond and more fulfilling. I love you. God loves you. If Paul were here, he would love you. I don't think anyone could be here and not love you. Would you stand with me, please? Thank you, Heather. I know you do. May the Lord, our God, whose love is infinite, fill us always with his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his understanding, and his love. So we know that we go into this world always with a full tank and everything that we need to be who we're supposed to be is already in us and it's making us into those people. The Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.